Acts chapter 15. And as we begin, uh, let me say something about the, the Nicene Creed. Each week when we say the Nicene Creed, we affirm four marks of the church. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I say this every week. These four marks of the church were formulated uh, in the early church in the fourth century uh, in the formation of the Nicene Creed. Um, but at that time, they weren't new. It wasn't a new idea. Um, these were things that were derived from the scriptures and what the Bible says about the church. And in fact, all four of these marks of the church, that is unity, holiness, Catholicity, and apostolicity, are on display in this particular chapter, Acts 15. And as we have been reading through the book of Acts, this middle section this summer, we come to Acts 15 now. Uh, our plan is to take four weeks to work through Acts 15 and to talk about each one of these marks, the four marks of the church. So uh, that's, that's the plan. Today we're going to start with the very last one, the apostolic church. What does this mean? What is an apostolic church? The apostolic church is that church that believes and proclaims the faith that Jesus entrusted to the apostles. The apostolic church is that church that believes and proclaims the faith that Jesus entrusted to the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and they were commissioned by Jesus to take the message to the world. Uh, Apostello, the Greek word from which we get apostle, means I send, and uh, they were sent by Jesus out with his message. So apostolic churches believe and proclaim the same gospel that Jesus entrusted to his apostles. Regardless of denomination, regardless of the era or the place, the geography, any of these things, any and every congregation that believes and proclaims the apostles' Faith, that is, the message that Jesus gave to the apostles, is, is an apostolic church. And on the other hand, any congregation that does not believe or does not proclaim uh, the message that Jesus gave to the apostles is heretical. So the apostolicity of the church is very important. It's also very simple. Look, if we are a Christian congregation, then faith in Jesus must be right at the very center of our identity, of who we are and what we do. If the faith that Jesus entrusted to the apostles isn't what we believe, then we have no more business calling ourselves a church than a shoe store does calling itself Starbucks. If you walk into Starbucks and they're selling sneakers, you have every right to be a little ticked. And in the same way, if you walk into a church and the faith that Jesus gave to his apostles, that message isn't the message that's being believed and proclaimed. You have every reason to leave and look for something else. So the apostolicity of the church is very important and very straightforward. The faith that Jesus entrusted to the apostles is a faith that must be at the center of every church. And that's what Christians meant in the fourth century when they wrote this into the Nicene Creed. It's often not what people mean when they use this word today. And I want to share with you a couple of ways that uh, this gets misinterpreted commonly. You've probably heard of one, if not both of these. One, the first way is when people take 
the focus off of the, the message of the faith that Jesus entrusted to the apostles and instead focused on the miracles. You'll see this a lot in Pentecostal churches where the emphasis of being an apostolic church is, is an emphasis on all of the amazing and wonderful uh, signs and wonders that are happening. This is a mistake because apostolicity is about the message rather than the miracles. We pray all the time for God to do miraculous things among us. We trust Him for that. But that's His responsibility, not our responsibility, right? We aren't responsible for miracles, God is. We are responsible for the message that's been entrusted to us. That's what we are supposed to continue to share. That message is what makes us an apostolic church. On the other hand, there are those who focus uh, more on what I would call institutional apostolic succession rather than on the message that Jesus entrusted to the apostles. Institutional apostolic succession is that idea that a pastor's legitimacy rests primarily on his ordination pedigree. That is, his being ordained by someone who is ordained by someone who is ordained by someone going all the way back to St. Peter or all the way back to the apostles. And this is particularly common amongst those Roman Catholics who believe that the Pope, and really the Pope only, is the person who has that direct line of connection to St. Peter and is therefore the only person who has the authority to interpret what apostolic means, what the apostolic message is. Um, there are many other traditions who also have some version of this. Uh, you see it in lots of different places. When I uh, some years ago, I was responsible for the clergy credentialing office for our denomination. Uh, we used to get applications quite frequently from pastors in other traditions who would write to us in order to get credentialed so that they could pastor churches in our denomination. And it was always easy to spot those who were coming from this kind of institutional apostolic succession background. Because their applications would come in the mail as these thick packets, like an inch thick. And you open the packet, and what unfolds is, a, is an ordination genealogy, page after page after page. This person ordained me, and this person ordained him, in fact, all the way. The apostles are amazing how they came up with that stuff. Um, but the question always was, oh gosh, if they spent this much time on this genealogy, have they spent this much time on the message that they're supposed to be carrying? It was always, always an interesting question to explore. Um, in any case, these are two very different extremes, and yet uh, what they both have in common is that they take the focus off of the apostolic message, and they put it on us. For example, we are the ones who still perform miracles like the apostles did, or we are the ones with the true ministerial pedigree. And either way, Jesus gets displaced, right? He gets displaced from the center by our tribe. Our tribe becomes the important group. Whenever our focus shifts away from Jesus to something like this, away from the apostolic message onto ourselves, we inevitably fall into idolatry. So I want to refocus on the message tonight, because that's what makes us an apostolic church. And that message is in full view in Acts 15, 1-11. As we look at this passage, I want to show you two things. First of all, the God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. And then secondly, that all who believe in the apostolic faith will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I want to show you that the God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. And so let's take a look at the first five verses. I'll read them again from chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, down to Antioch in Syria, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Is it, is it necessary? Is it necessary to be circumcised in order to become a Christian? Is it necessary to become Jewish before you become a Christian? It may seem like a silly question today, but it was a very pressing question in the early church. And that's because for more than a decade, <coughs> early church was entirely Jewish. You think about on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 pilgrims to Jerusalem heard the gospel preached in all of these different languages in, in their native tongues. And 3,000 people converted on that day to Christianity. We have the impression sometimes that this, this was uh, a, a multi-ethnic group. It was very international and cosmopolitan, but underneath that international makeup was a single ethnicity. They were all Jewish. And they were all there uh, coming back, because they were the part of the diaspora throughout the Roman Empire. They were coming back uh, to celebrate Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. And it's interesting that it, this happened on Pentecost. It's no coincidence, because they were there to remember and celebrate the giving of the law to God's people on Mount Sinai many years before. It was on that day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Jeremiah, long before, had prophesied that a day would come when the law that used to be on those stone tablets, external to God's people, would be moved into our hearts. Our hearts would be made new, and the law would be written on new hearts. He said that that day would come, and that day came on Pentecost. When the law was written on new hearts, as the Holy Spirit was given to God's people. For the next 15 years, more or less, the church grew almost exclusively among the Jews. And we shouldn't be at all surprised. After all, the good news of the gospel was the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hopes. It was according to Old Testament prophecy that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the city of David. He was born to parents descended from King David. Um, the angel announced to Joseph that you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Right? After he was circumcised on the eighth day, his parents took him to the temple and they presented him there. And there were these old folks who were waiting for him. And, and had been waiting all their lives for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for this day to come to pass. Jesus, the, the promised Messiah King, had come. 
So it's no surprise that it was all Jews in the beginning. But as we've heard, the Gentiles started coming in. The Gentiles started coming in and coming to faith. Uh, it started through Peter's ministry with the Roman centurion named Cornelius, and then through the ministry of Barnabas and Paul as they, uh, they ministered in the church in Syria, in Antioch, and then as they went about on the missionary journey that we've been learning about over the past uh, several weeks, studying Acts 13 and 14. And wherever Paul and Barnabas went, both Gentiles and Jews heard and believed the apostolic faith. It makes sense to me that the Jews believed, but why would the Gentiles want to come in to something that was so thoroughly Jewish? I think the answer is a principle that we learned as we worked through Exodus. Maybe some of you were around back then. Uh, when we were in Exodus, we learned that God calls all people from death and destruction to himself for the sake of the world. God calls all people from death and destruction to himself for the sake of the world. It's the same today as it was back when the Jews made the exodus from Egypt, uh, and as it was in the book of Acts as Jews and Gentiles came to faith. Um, let me explain it in terms of the religious landscape of the Roman Empire in that day. There were really two different possible religions in most of the Roman Empire cities. Uh, it's not like you had options. People were typically born into one religion or the other. Um, most people in the Roman Empire were pagans, uh, and they were worshippers of the Greco-Roman pantheon, uh, including the emperor. And uh, this was not something that they would just do on one day of the week. Worship of the pantheon was something that happened all the time because the gods were everywhere. They were everywhere, they were in your business, and if you weren't paying them attention and keeping them happy, well then they might uh, randomly take action against you. They were constantly threatening misfortune, constantly demanding tribute, and uh, they were capricious when ignored. They weren't real, of course, yet we all know the very real power of the things these gods represented. Things like wealth, and popularity, and health, and fertility. These things are important to us today. And so it's very easy to see how these non-gods could have exercised control over people in the Roman Empire. People were enslaved to these non-gods who felt very real and very demanding. That was paganism. On the other side was Judaism, and Judaism uh, was very different. Also a way of life, but uh, so different, so strict about food, and about Sabbath keeping, and about chastity within marriage, and of course about circumcision. They believed in only one God, with whom they had a kind of marriage covenant relationship, yet whose anger had been roused against them, and therefore they had been scattered throughout the empire. Uh, but they would meet with the permission of the empire in their synagogues. Incredibly, they had been given this exception. They didn't have to worship the other gods. They could meet in the synagogue, and they met in the synagogue to pray as they waited for the Messiah to come, so that the Messiah King might forgive their sins and usher in last days. In each city that Barnabas and Paul visited, they would go first to the synagogue and go and talk to the Jews. And they would announce to them the good news. The last days had come. The Messiah had come. All their hopes from the Old Testament 
had been uh, realized as Jesus was the Messiah. Just as the angel had promised Jesus saves his people from their sins, and those who believed the apostolic faith would receive the promised Holy Spirit and be reconciled to God. It was the message that Jews everywhere were waiting to hear. And then they would go outside the synagogue, Paul and Barnabas, and they would begin to share this message also with Gentiles. The one true God had finally done what he had promised long ago through the Jewish scriptures, and now had opened the door for all nations to come to him. Again, the appeal makes sense to Jews, but what was attractive about it to Gentiles? God calls all people from death and destruction to himself for the sake of the world. And if you're not a Christian, he is inviting you to come to him right now for the same reasons. He's inviting you to come to him. To, he's calling you from death and destruction to himself for the sake of the world. If you think about it, you can realize why this was so attractive to uh, the, the people throughout the Roman Empire. Being called from death and destruction, why not be free of these non-gods that are ruining your life, who control uh, every aspect of your life? You just can't get away from them, and you never know when, because of their capriciousness, they're going to screw something up. And why not come to the one true living God, the God who made you and the God who loves you and cares for you? And not only come to him, but also come into his church and become a part of the mission because God is making all things new. Every broken thing is being set right. And he has a place for you. He has work for you. He's going to gift you and empower you to do that. I think you can see how attractive that must have been to Gentiles wanting to escape from the, the um, imprisonment of paganism. Judaism had been blocked for them for a variety of reasons, primarily because of their ethnicity, but also that circumcision thing was in the way. But now, Barnabas and Paul were saying, come on in, come on in. And so Gentiles began responding to this message and coming in. They came to faith uh, in the Galatian uh, cities and then uh, in, uh, in uh, Antioch in Syria. And now, as Paul and Barnabas have made their way back to their sending church, this question has come up. It's a, it's a procedural question raised by some of the Jewish believers. Uh, it's an important question. Must Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved? It's an important question, and uh, Paul says no. A number of the others say yes, so they load up and they head to Jerusalem to sort it out. They need to answer this question. But one thing that is absolutely settled, and it's not a question at all, is the Old Testament backstory to this whole thing. The God of Israel had finally accomplished his mission. Like we heard in the psalm today, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, the Lord, and shall glorify your name. That day had come. And that's why, even though, if you look at verse 2 in this passage, even though there was a lot of turmoil and dissension about the circumcision question, Look at verse 3 and see what's happening as Paul and Barnabas make their way from Antioch uh, down, which is what we would say, but it's uphill, so they say up to Jerusalem, uh, hundreds of miles to the south. As they make their way through Phoenicia, 
um, as they make their way through Samaria. And all along the way, they're meeting with converted Jews, and they're telling them about their travels uh, to Cyprus and to Galatia. And they're telling them the nations have started coming in. And what's happening? People are joyful. They're celebrating. The Jews are celebrating that the nations are now glad with the Lord. This is really exciting. This was what people had always been looking forward to. Not only that the Messiah would come, but that the nations would begin to come to God. So, here's the first point. And it's a very important point to understanding uh, this whole chapter. And that is that the God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. The apostolic faith was not something that Paul came up with just to infuriate uh, Jewish legalists. This, this was the fulfillment, rather, of the Old Testament backstory. It was the completion of something that God himself, the God of Israel, had authored. Jesus, the Messiah, is the long-awaited ending to that story, bringing the consolation of Israel and making all the nations glad. God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. One of the earliest heresies facing the church involved the denial of the Old Testament backstory. In the early 2nd century, Marcion argued that there were basically two gods in the Bible. There was the mean uh, nasty Old Testament God and the sweet New Testament God, forget about the cross thing, but the sweet New Testament God. Um, and he taught that Paul was the only person who got it right. Uh, and, and Paul uh, got it right by saying that the Old Testament God was bad and the New Testament God was good. And for this, Marcion was excommunicated by the church and he was dismissed by all of the, the church fathers of the time. And it was part, partly because of Marcion that the Nicene Creed eventually was written a couple of hundred years later. The early church believed that the Old Testament is the in indispensable backstory to Jesus, and that the God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. So this was settled long ago, and yet it keeps coming up, and that's why I'm belaboring it tonight. Uh, even as recently as last summer, uh, in a megachurch down south, um, a very well-known pastor started talking from this chapter about the importance of unhitching Christianity from the Old Testament. He later walked this back some, or uh, made some different comments about it. It's unclear what he thinks about it now. Uh, but this thing comes up over and over again. There are always people uh, who are saying, let's get rid of the Old Testament and let's have a clean all of that stuff. If you, if you do that, you are uh, removing the whole backstory that makes sense of who Jesus is. The God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. But what about the circumcision question? We need to answer that question. We need to move on, and let's move on to the second point, which is all who believe the apostolic faith will be saved through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at the remainder of this passage uh, and then tackle this question together. Verse 6 of chapter 15, The apostles and the elders were gathered together in Jerusalem to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's no doubt that the God of Israel is the author of the apostolic faith. But does that necessarily mean that Gentiles who embrace the apostolic faith have to be circumcised? Starting verse 7, Peter, who had long wrestled with this question, stands up and testifies, saying, no, they do not. God had chosen Peter, as he says in verse 7, uh, God had chosen him and sent him to Caesarea Maritima, to um, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, to his house, uh, in order to bring him the good news. And then Peter witnessed, as he says in verses 8 and 9, God's gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles gathered there, just the same as if they had been Jews. Maybe you remember from Acts chapter 10, uh, the story of how this came about. Prior to meeting Cornelius, God had shown Peter three times in a vision that he was not to consider unclean that which God had made clean. And then Peter, the Jew, went into the home of this unclean Gentile, Cornelius. And after sharing the apostolic faith with Cornelius and his household, and witnessing the Holy Spirit come upon Peter realized what he says in verse 9, that God had cleansed their hearts by faith. Do you see that? That God had cleansed their hearts by faith. He made them clean. And it says in, in Acts 10 that he hung out with them for quite a while after that. All this happened around 10 years before this, this council that's now meeting in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Sometime during the interim, Peter made his way to the church in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were. And while he was there, he waffled on this particular issue. Under pressure from the circumcision party, uh, those people who thought that the Gentiles were still unclean, Peter drew back from them and said, I'm not going to eat with you because you're unclean. And after he made that decision, of course, other Others started to follow his lead, including even Barnabas. Imagine how painful this must have been to the Gentile Christians who had converted and who believed that God had made them clean and who were then being blocked from table fellowship with Peter. It's like uh, the Jim Crow South when uh, white Christians said to people of color, get out of our church, you don't belong here. It's horrible. And this very same thing was happening in Antioch, right at the, the dawn of Christianity. So Paul confronted Peter publicly, and then he helped Peter understand why circumcision, external circumcision, was no longer necessary for those who believed the apostolic message. I won't explain this, but in order to understand it, we have to think a little bit about what circumcision was for. Circumcision was given to the Jews in Genesis 17 as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It was an outward sign 
of the inward condition that God wanted for his covenant people. God wanted their hearts to be circumcised. Remember, God calls people from death and destruction to himself for the sake of the world, and therefore our hearts have to be pure, free from idolatry and sin. And circumcision of the foreskin was intended to serve as an outward sign of this pure heart condition. It wasn't supposed to be an alternative to a pure heart, but rather a sign, an outward sign, and a kind of precursor since it was usually given to uh, infants on the eighth day. And from that day forward, that infant was to grow up to be a man with a pure heart. And it wasn't just supposed to be for, for that male child, but it was supposed to be for the whole household, and in fact, for the whole nation of Israel, they were all supposed to grow up to have circumcised hearts, pure hearts, clean hearts before the Lord. Sadly, the kingdom of Israel failed. They failed miserably. Instead of exporting their faith to the nations, they imported paganism into Israel. Uh, they assimilated the, the idols of the other nations, and eventually, just as Adam and Eve had been exiled from the Garden of Eden, Israel was exiled uh, out into what became the Greco-Roman Empire. But God did not fail in his mission, in his mercy. He sent Jesus to not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And the Messiah, King of Israel, did what the kingdom of Israel could not do. He took on death and destruction in order to defeat it so that all people might be rescued from it to God for the sake of the world. Through his death, Jesus saved his people from their sins, and through his resurrection, he opened the way for all nations to come and worship God. And then through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he opened the way for all people, both Jews and Gentiles, to have what Peter says about the Gentiles in verse 9, to have their hearts cleansed by faith. Do you see that? In other words, the circumcision of the heart, what the outward sign always pointed to yet never could accomplish, is what Jesus finally obtained for all people who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. So, as Paul taught the Galatians, and undoubtedly taught Peter as well, there was a kind of deeper magic at work here. I'm going to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis and kind of butcher it. Uh, there was a deeper magic from before the dawn of circumcision, and it was at work in God's covenant with Abraham. Before circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, God had already made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and we read that passage this evening. As we're told, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was already in with God. He didn't need circumcision to get him. Rather, circumcision was given to him as a sign of what God had done. Fast forward to Pentecost, when in view of what Jesus had done for us, God poured out his spirit upon the church. The Old Testament promises of a clean new heart with God's law written upon it pointed to this moment. So did the circumcision of the foreskin, even though it never accomplished this. So from the day of Pentecost onward, as Paul concludes in his letter to the Galatians, he says, neither Circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything anymore. What matters is new creation. 
Yes, of course, circumcision is necessary for Gentiles to come to faith. Of course it is. Just as it is with Jews. But the external circumcision of the foreskin is no longer at all important. It's the circumcision of the heart. That's the thing that's necessary. That's something that we can't do for ourselves. Only God can do it. That's why baptism took the place of circumcision as a sign from this point forward. It's the outward sign, verse 9, of hearts cleansed by faith. So in view of these things, Peter closes his address at the Jerusalem Council uh, going on the offensive. He says, the circumcision party was putting God to the test, language that uh, occurs throughout the Bible, um, when people are resisting God's will. How are they resisting? By placing a heavy yoke on the neck of the Gentile disciples, those people whose hearts have already been made clean by God, those people who had, uh, who had shown, demonstrated by their faith uh, that God had done this work in their hearts, they no longer needed circumcision on the outside because circumcision on the inside had already occurred. If circumcision had been necessary for them, then Jesus' death would have never been necessary. But in fact, Jesus had accomplished for us all what external circumcision never could. Now he offers us all this easy yoke, and all who embrace him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, will be saved, as Peter says, verse 11, through his grace. No distinction. Here's the bottom line. You and I need new hearts. We need to be washed clean. And it's not something that we can do for ourselves. We can try to change the subject, as the circumcision party did in the early church. We can, and often do, try to make inclusion in the church about something other than God's grace to us. We can say that only those who have this or that external marker are the true believers. We're adept at this. Uh, we do it all the time. We say, the only true believers are those people who are affiliated with this political party, for example, who vote this way on this particular issue, right? Or we say, the only true believers are those people who don't drink alcohol, or who drink craft beer. The only true believers are those people who listen to Christian pop music, or who hate Christian pop music, right? We can keep doing this, and we will keep doing this, on and on and on, of, of making some external marker the sign of who's truly in. And whenever we do that, we are taking the focus off of the apostolic message about Jesus. That's what's supposed to be in the center of an apostolic church. We take it off of Jesus, and we put it on ourselves, and we say, look at this external sign me. And when we've done that, we've created an impossibly heavy yoke, not only for those on the outside to come in, but also for ourselves. It's a crushing burden for us to carry. It never works. We simply cannot bear it. The grace of the Lord Jesus, on the other hand, is feather. Feather, it's a light as a feather kind of burden, right? 
He's already done for us what we could not do for ourselves. New hearts, clean hearts, pure hearts, circumcised hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. By His grace, He has delivered His people from death and destruction to Himself for the sake of the world. That's what this passage is about. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the rest that you give. Your yoke is easy, your burden is light. We turn to you this evening, those of us who maybe have never experienced any of that before, asking that you might free us from all of these non-gods and free us to come to you And for all of us who have wandered astray and made our inclusion in your kingdom about something other than you, forgive us and draw us back to you and let us delight in your easy yoke. We praise you for this gift of grace. You are good. We thank you.